What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Financial Residency Podcast. If you're new here, please subscribe. We are excited to have you here. For those that have been here for a while or have listened to pretty much every episode, you guys are rock stars, amazing people, and the reason why I do this and get excited to do these podcasts. And today I'm really pumped on the topic. And even if you're not interested in working with a planner, I think this is still a really good one. And we've got a cool show today. So I talk about how knowledge, really it's powerful. And when it comes to your finances, there should be no messing around. Earning your money was really hard work. Even the debt you hold represents a dedication to your education and your future and should be treated with respect and care. So whether you've made the decision to work with a financial advisor or you're trying to decide whether or not to work with one, starting here is, I think, a really good place to understand the business relationship about what that next step may look like. Now, as in any business, there are honest professionals and then there are people who are going to cheat you. There's also plenty of people existing in that middle gray area where they may mean well, but they have their own business scenes or best interests that they serve. Or perhaps they do want to provide a service but aren't qualified like a financial planner should be and are not the best fit for your needs. And I know trying to determine which of these is good and bad is challenging and stressful. And just to add to that stress of knowing that making the wrong decision could cost you a ton of your life savings and you'd be in a lot of trouble. So in today's show, we're going to talk about how advisors are compensated, why they do what they do, the difference between fee-only and fee-based. And I still keep bringing this up because so many of you are messing this up and you really need to understand the difference and not interchange the two. I'm likely going to go off on Northwestern Mutual and Edward Jones because we see so many of our community have policies through these people and they're just terrible. And we'll do our financial malpractice segment. We have a really interesting listener question that was just called in and I want to make sure we address this really important question Uh, I think it's very time sensitive, so stick around for that as well. But first, let's hear from today's sponsor. And if you need access to cash at fair rates, Doc2Doc Lending believes that when debt can be avoided, it should be. They also realize, however, that sometimes borrowing is necessary to help doctors overcome short-term cash issues to improve long-term personal financial health. Founded and led by fellow doctors, all of whom started out as cash-strapped residents, Doc2Doc Lending exists not only to meet doctors in their moments of need, but to do so in a way that assesses and appreciates each doctor borrower as fellow physicians can. Apply for the loan that you need with Doc2Doc Lending by go to doctorpodcastnetwork.com slash doc, then the number two, doc. And again, that will be in the description of the show that you're listening to right now. You know me, I'm really transparent, I'm super blunt, and I just say what's on my mind. But I want to make sure that this is very, very apparent and disclosed right in the beginning. For those that may not know, I am a fee-only financial planner, along with my partner, Casey Cress, who's on our Friday show every single Friday. We own Physician Wealth Services. It's a firm that helps physicians all across the country with financial planning and their investments. We do financial planning, life planning. We're like coaches and accountability partners. But I want to give this as the main disclosure in the very beginning that I am a fee-only financial planner. So as we're talking about financial planners, I have some bias of why I don't think you should be working with people who have conflicts of interest. And I want you to be aware of what those conflicts of interest are. 
Because I think learning about the different ways that financial advisors are compensated is really, really important. So choose the one with the right fee structure, the bedside manner, so to speak, that's best for you. Once you have a clear understanding of how financial advisors make their money, you're going to be better positioned to make the decision that is best for you. So let's talk quickly about the fee-only fiduciary, right? Before you think about a financial planner and how they charge, it's important that you look for someone that is a fiduciary. And this is a financial advisor who has a stated and particular legal responsibility to dispense sound advice that is in your best interest as the client. Not all financial planners are fiduciaries. In fact, I would guess that single digit percentages of financial planners are actually fiduciaries. It is that low. And while we do this on an ongoing basis, by continuing following your investments and ensuring that your needs are being met from a holistic point of view, a fiduciary could also be a bank or a brokerage firm or a trustee of a trust. Right? Loyalty, good faith, full disclosure, honesty, unbiased financial advice, these are all traits that you can expect you are legally entitled to receive from a fiduciary. Other providers, including brokers, and this is where, again, I'm going to keep referencing them because they stink, like Northwestern Mutual and Edward Jones, they have a suitability, and I put that in quotes, obligation, meaning that they can recommend a product that is appropriate for you at the time of purchase, but they have no ongoing responsibility to monitor that investment, even if you work with them ongoing. And additionally, there's going to be varied compensation methods used in different investments. And so I believe in complete transparency of our fees and every fiduciary should, and that is consistent with the fiduciary responsibilities. So I've mentioned a little bit about how advisors get paid, and I think we should go into how all the advisors kind of earn their living. There's the fee-only advisors, which NAFA, one of our regulating kind of bodies, it's the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors. I believe they did their study and it was something like 97% of all financial advisors are fee-based, meaning less than 3% are actually fee-only. That is a big word, only versus fee-based. So there's three ways, right? Fee-only, fee-based. So really those are the two main ways, fee-only, fee-based, but I really want to also add in the concept of assets under management because that sits underneath both and you need to understand how all these kind of work together. So a fee-only financial planner earns his or her paycheck from, you guessed it, the fees that they charge you. This is opposed to earning their paycheck from a commission of products or other things that they may sell to you. They are registered and are such ethically and legally bound to work in the client's best interest. So as the client upfront, what the financial advice will cost you. There's no surprises and no blurred lines. This arrangement will allow the planner to be focused on meeting your needs because he or she knows that they're being paid fairly for their services. You can rest assured that your best interest at heart if they've put the fiduciary oath in writing. Now, does that mean that the other side of this, the 97% of commission-based or fee-based planners are unethical? No, not at all. I have tons of friends that are fee-based planners and they'll actually never become fee-only because the money that they make from selling products and the commissions is just too great that they would take large financial harm and it'd be horrible impact on their own personal finances that they couldn't do that. But earning a commission is a different type of payment structure that is not in your best interest. And so these are why I want you to know the options and exactly what you're paying for when you go to hire a person if you're one of those that wants to hire a planner. Like I mentioned, a fee-based planner 
gets paid based on the products that they sell. And 97% plus of all advisors out there are fee-based. And I think you honestly should avoid this type of relationship at all costs. Not only is it though the big firms like Northwestern Mutual and Edward Jones and Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley and all those other ones that are paid by selling you products in addition to the assets that they're doing, but a lot of small firms that target doctors are fee-based planners. Easiest way to tell is if someone can sell you insurance, they are fee-based. That is the easiest way to tell this. Now, they're not legally required to disclose how much they make from insurance products or other things that they sell, but they could also be referring you to an estate planning firm or an accountant or another attorney to set up a practice, whatever it may be, and they can get kickbacks from those as new client referrals fees would be rolling in. Fee-only advisors, if I was to refer you to someone, I couldn't receive a Starbucks cup of coffee, and that is a very different kind of relationship, if you will, based on client's and how fee-only and fee-based work. But assets under management is common throughout both. And this is the AUM fee or assets under management fee. And under this model, an advisor is paid a percentage of the money you have invested. So typically it's one, one and a half percent. If you have a little less money, maybe 2% and then it scales downwards. But I think typically you could say 1% up to your first million dollars is about normal for the industry. And that is pretty much all the assets they have under management, and you usually pay those fees quarterly. But the kicker is here is you don't even have to write a check and you never really get a bill. Instead, the fees are calculated, they're automatically deducted from your account, and you're going to see this on your quarterly statement that comes from the custodian. So let's say that they're using TD Ameritrade or Fidelity. It'll be in that you know 20-page statement as one line item on how much you paid your advisor. It will constantly be changing based on the ending balance of your account at the end of the quarter. And I really don't like this model because you really don't know what you're paying for. So while they may be a fiduciary and they may be fee only, you're still having some conflicts, some blurred lines between how are you paying this person and how much you're actually paying them. This is also where you have to understand that the planner is compensated by the assets that they have under management. Therefore, the conflict exists when you say, hey, should I pay off this debt or should I invest? If the answer is, well, you've got $50,000 in your account. And if you put $50,000 in your taxable account, then the advisor is going to make 1% on that $50,000. Therefore, conflict of interest, they will make more money with that versus if you said, well, I've got 50K worth of student loan debt and they could say, toss it in there. They make zero extra dollars. This is very hard to distinguish as the client, especially because you're trusting this person with your financial life to make the best decision possible. Yet the way that they are compensated ends up bringing in conflicts that will actually not help you over the long period of time. I hate this assets on our management model. It's what's actually, as we're going through our training as financial planners, pounded into our head. In order to have a successful business, you need to charge an assets on our management model. And that is because as you as clients have more money, we make more money, but the work doesn't scale with the amount of money that you're in putting in and the growth of your portfolio. So, Brand new clients have come to us that are paying their advisors forty dollars and $50,000. I look them straight in the face and go, I wish I could tell you I'm worth forty dollars or $50,000 a year, but I'm not. 
No one is, but the balance in your accounts has grown so much. The advisor, their profit margins are insane on that because there's not that much work that's involved between an account that is worth $10,000 in fees and maybe has one or 2 million in management versus an account that has 4 million in management, but they charge double or triple or quadruple the fee. And so that's all profit margin. So understanding that when you work with a financial planner, they should understand your investments and your risk tolerance and help you with your financial situation and your financial goals. And they're the ones that are actually making the transactions and doing basically the tax loss harvesting right? This is the person that's there to help you. And they say, my motivation is the planners to help your money grow because our money grows as well. The pro and con of that though, is that over time it will become significantly more expensive. And I think I've even answered a listener question on air when someone said, Hey, look, why don't I work with a fee only planner that charges an AUM fee in the beginning when I have a little bit of assets and then switch to a person that's cheaper over time. While it's a fair assumption to say it's cheap here and then it becomes more expensive, I'll make a switch. Usually you build a relationship and a rapport with that person. And it is hard to untangle the messy emotional part of this. Financial advisors, if they're doing their job correctly, are an integral part of your team and that you will have a very good relationship with your advisor. They should be asking you all sorts of personal questions that aren't even related to money. And That's why it is so critical to choose the person in the beginning, the right person, because as emotion gets mixed in with the financial stuff, this is where it becomes really hard to untangle and you end up spending a lot more money over your investing career than if you just went with the person that had the correct model that fit your investment criteria, that fit your bedside manner, that fit all kind of and checked all the boxes even if it maybe was a little bit more in the beginning, it's all about looking long-term on everything, investments. And I think this is investing in a financial planner as well. Now we've talked about potential conflicts of interest and how a fee-based advisor really is a salesman or saleswoman. They don't get paid if you don't have products that earn them money. And so their best interest is to sell you investment products like insurance policies or expensive mutual funds, because the more money you allow them to touch for an investment, and I put that in air quotes, the more money they're going to make. And while that may sound like a good idea, because isn't more money everyone's goal, consider the motivation of that individual, right? Financial investing over a long term is all about balance. The key is to understand what products are out there, how different options work, as well as the risks of the different choices available to you. So helping contextualize that information and offer advice on what may work better for you instead of what will garner the highest commission, quote unquote, being your best interest. And that brings us to this like potentially awkward conversation around firms like Northwestern Mutual and Edward Jones. So if anyone's listening, like hashtag don't sue me, but I think that these firms and there's dozens and dozens and dozens of them out there are horrible, absolutely horrible. And in 2019, so I've waited a little bit of period of time because I want to see how other people who are bashing this, if they were getting sued or how this ended up working. I just, I'm always wary with large firms that have massive legal budgets and how they can work. But in 2019, the CFP board made some really big changes around disclosures, around the fiduciary standard. And that prompted some of the bigger firms, let's pick on Northwestern Mutual because I'd love to do that, to be more clear on how they do business. And so Northwestern Mutual actually created a disclosure document that is out there 
for the public. You can go and Google this. You type in my commitment to you as a CFP professional. And then I would add like Northwestern Mutual. And you're going to get a six page document that is titled just that. And essentially it describes in detail how Northwestern Mutual is like crazy amount of conflicts of interest that their CFPs face as a Northwestern Mutual representative and an insurance agent. And they include talking about the contractual relationships between their Northwestern Mutual, the compensation related conflicts and how they talk about even increasing payout percentages. And they describe the representative's relationship of having three points. You've basically got Northwestern Mutual on one side, you have the client on the other side, and then you have the representative or the CFP in the middle. And it's telling the story essentially of how the representatives or quote unquote the CFPs, they don't actually advise. They're hired, they trained, and they're incentivized to sell. Now, the SEC has put a pretty heavy burden on advisors to basically infer or accept that clients have informed consent. And this includes being aware or at least having the client aware that they understand the nature and importance of the conflict. And this is where I think Northwestern Mutual, but more importantly, the Northwestern Mutual CFPs are in a real big bind because they put out this disclosure at the end of 2019. And I think COVID saved their butts on this because everyone got distracted, rightfully so, with everything that ensued with the pandemic because they put this out right at the end of 2019. But their disclosures doesn't meet the burden. And they also know that a Northwestern Mutual CFP can't just go and create its own business practice or work independently in Northwestern. So the CFPs, I've got the CFP, I've got to acknowledge this fiduciary and these disclosures, but I can't because Northwestern Mutual essentially is just telling me I'm, I don't even give advice. I'm just a trained and incentivized to sell, right? And they have well over a thousand CFPs that are affiliated with Northwestern Mutual. And so it's really clear that the CFPs at Northwestern have a financial interest in selling permanent insurance products. And they even talked about their insurance commissions can be as much as 55% of the first year of premium that you're paying, which blows my mind that if you said, hey, my premium is $10,000, they can make $5,500 of that $10,000 you paid in as basically their commission. And that's not even including the renewal commissions, persistency fees, and other fees that they have like service fees related to the mix. So it's pretty amazing that they have broken all of this out. And they even talked about how insurance sales are going to directly relate to the compensation that they give on their investment advice and planning. And they call it their compensation grid. So the more insurance you sell, the more payout you will get by giving advice and investment recommendations. So again, all roads lead back to insurance. And there's three direct quotes that I'll bring to you guys here. But if you're interested more, if you have a Northwestern Mutual product, highly encourage you to go read this because you will be disgusted. And then you will actually do the right thing, which is to find an insurance agent that is absolutely independent and can look at your actual position and give you the right policy for probably a much better price. And it's probably going to be a much better policy as well. You can do the quick research at financialresidency.com slash insurance. I've had both of those gentlemen on. They're great guys. But for the direct quotes, here they are. They're incentivized to, quote unquote, sell Northwestern Mutual Insurance products to a client often. 
to sell more expensive products and services to the client, which will have the effect of increasing the CFP's compensation. And then it specifically says, I have incentive to recommend a Northwestern Mutual variable annuity product for purchases below $50,000, which is a material conflict of interest. Why would anyone at this point choose to work with Northwestern Mutual? Otherwise, they have just millions and millions of dollars in sales and budgeting for their marketing. But why work with these people? Please help your other peers out by getting out of these products. They're not good products. They're just incentivized to sell and to keep going with their sales and their referrals. Please, let's break the cycle. Stop working with Northwestern Mutual. So now it comes back to everyone else that's not at these big firms like Edward Jones and Merrill Lynch. I think everyone deserves to be fairly compensated for their work in a particular profession, especially when professional services are involved. Now, some planners charge a fixed flat fee for the work they provide, and it's usually based on the scope of the project or the inquiry, or perhaps it's based on a schedule. Could be an annual fee, could be quarterly. But it, the, the important thing here is the client will always know the fee up front. There's no guesswork. It's on the website. You don't have to talk to anyone to get the fee. It is clear as day out there, plain English, completely transparent, and it should be the structure that a client can trust. So that is how we operate at Physician Well Services. You can look at our website, physicianwellservice.com. You don't have to speak to me. You can actually see what our fees are right there on the website, right? We don't receive commissions. We don't have 12B1 fees or any other kickbacks. We're paid essentially to help deliver the best possible advice for your specific situation without hidden fees, without gotchas, just honest, holistic financial advice. And be rest assured that our interests are aligned with yours. So you've seen that we work in a fee only and especially a flat fee only capacity. And that's for several reasons, right? Fee only is simple. You know exactly what you're going to be charged and what you will receive in exchange for that fee. Fee only is super transparent. There's no surprises, no hidden fees, no percentages taken out of your accounts, no hidden billing. It's right there in your face. Fee only allows us to focus on services provided, not how much money we can get from you, which is essentially what everyone else is trying to do. Fee only allows us to be fairly compensated for the services we provide to you and you treated fairly at the same time. It's fair and equitable for both parties. And it allows us to help anyone, regardless of the size of your assets or the debt without prejudice. And this is at the heart of what we do. Like I said, it's fair and equitable for both parties. We're not trying to upcharge you because after all, you're quote unquote a doctor because I'm so sick of hearing that. It is so incredibly frustrating. I get it all the time too. Oh, it must be nice. You're married to a doctor. It's, yeah. Do you understand how hard that was for her Taylor to go through this? And for me, yes, I wasn't going in the day-to-day grind that all of you do, but being married and being alongside for that journey for the last 20 years has been very challenging. There's a lot of things that people don't understand being in medicine and being a family in medicine. So the honest truth here is that there's always going to be people in any profession who are less than honest. They may try to cheat you outright, or they may simply have their own business or personal needs at heart. But either way, you lose. One of the best protections you have against this is to understand the type of professional that you need to hire and then seek the person who best aligns with your interests and that good old gut feeling. We provide all of our service at Physician Well Services. We're fee only. We don't earn any commissions. We serve as a fiduciary for you. And that means that we put your needs ahead of ours. 
And we believe that's the way it should be for any advisor you choose, whether it's us or anyone else out there, please be very, very picky. Ask a lot of questions. It is very, very important. Your financial lives are at stake. If you choose the wrong type of professionals to work with, if for some reason you would like to work with us, we'd be honored and you can book a free introductory call with me. Unfortunately, it is with me. And you can do that by going to physicianwealthservices.com. Check us out, book a call, and I'd be honored to chat with you. But please be careful if you choose not to work with us, that you're choosing with the right person. All right, heading over to our financial malpractice segment with our scary financial horror stories. Or not so scary. But either way, we've got Nathan and No Song on from Thoughtful Wills. Guys, what's up? Not much. Hello, Ryan. Oh, hello. <laughs> Excited to have you guys back on. This is so fun. I love getting together and hearing a little bit about uh, some financial malpractice stories from all of our guests. And it's really nice to have you guys back on to talk through some of the estate planning stuff. So what do you have for us today? Well, I guess you could call it a horror story, but today I will call it a common misconception. And that is that most people, when I say estate plan, they run away from me and don't make eye contact. Yeah. What kind of podcast would that be even? <laughs> but most people really think that an estate plan refers only to wills and maybe a trust. And the other huge misconception is that estate planning issues only arise after death, when in fact, estate planning issues can arise during your lifetime. So what I'm referring to is something that we refer to as coma documents, uh, durable power of attorney for finances and property, and then healthcare directives. A lot of people maybe have heard of them as healthcare proxy or advanced care planning, but both of these documents I think are critically important to an estate plan. And you often refer to them as the four important pillars of an estate plan. So thank you so much for always doing that. But we decided to call them coma documents because when people would call us interested in our services and we'd offer the coma documents and explain that they were, they would often say, oh, I'm young and healthy. I work out all the time. I'll take care of it later when I'm frail. When we really wanted to reply with, okay, that's cool. But just wondering, do you drive a car? Do you walk across the street? You eat food? Do you wear a mask? Right? Yes, exactly. We all do these things. I hate to sound all Debbie Downer, but the thing is, there are no guarantees in life. None of us know when we might get into an accident or when we might get really sick, especially these days. Who knows what tomorrow brings? As we all well know, sadly, accidents and illness can strike without warning. And doctors are at the forefront of all this. They see this firsthand every single day. I have a friend whose parents were in a terrible car accident just days before Christmas. Their new car was hit by a milk truck that completely ran a stop sign in rural Wisconsin. Amazingly, they both survived. I saw the pictures. I don't know how. Med flight, jaws of life, the whole nine yards. They were flown to UW Hospital and both ended up suffering traumatic brain injury. Neither parents had any estate planning documents in place, not even coma documents. After this long hospital stay, the parents were transferred to a rehab facility that ended up you know, being super costly if they didn't qualify for particular state medical benefits. So their two adult children on their feet quickly thought about financial planning being the key to ensure that their stay at the rehab facility was covered. And feeling hopeless, not being able to help out with the medical side of things, they, they got to work figuring out the financial side of things. They felt like this was the only way that they could help. They were a very exceptionally close family. And because of the heavy doses of pain medication on top of the traumatic brain injury, there was never any opportunity for them to get their coma documents in place at the hospital. There was just no way. You have to be competent when you take care of these documents. 
And because both parents were unable to make any medical or financial decisions for themselves, a guardianship and conservatorship court proceeding was required. They had to go to the court to get this done. A lot of people don't even realize that. And each state differs according to how old you have to be to have this done. But if those coma documents had been in place, then no court proceedings would have been needed. And as it turns out, the judge, in his whim that day, decided, not knowing the family at all, that he would appoint an attorney instead of one of the two children. Just horrible. He didn't know how close they were, but he thought, no, let's just make sure that there's no shady stuff going on with the financial planning here. The attorney ended up being really suspicious of the kids didn't understand the strategic financial planning that they were trying to organize and thought that they were up to no good. And they ended up in a legal battle with their father's guardian and conservator. It was over $40,000 in legal bills. So horrible. At some point, their dad ended up gaining enough consciousness to execute a legally valid power of attorney for finances and property and healthcare directive. And so that ended that guardianship and conservatorship. But he ended up passing away a few months later. And this is the horrible part of it was in those last months of his life, the family spent so much time and so much money on legal matters and time in court instead of spending time with their dad. The bottom line here is those coma documents, a durable power of attorney for finances and property and a healthcare directive are just as important as a will and a trust. Yeah, that's a terrible story. But at the same time, the kind of lesson to take away is make sure that you are getting these things put together you do have them. And I think it's a powerful story to show when you don't have them, what could happen or what could take place. And that is a terrible story, but it could have been a whole lot worse. Obviously could have been a lot better if they'd had those things in place, but thank you for explaining and giving a great story for the segment. And we appreciate you. And if anyone out there does not have this stuff put together, please, please, please get this stuff done. It's really, really important. You don't have to be super rich and wealthy to get these things done. Look, there was in no part of that story was the parents worth hundreds of millions and they had this thing. It doesn't need to be that way. And they also don't need to be old, too. That's the other thing. Just because these parents had adult children. I mean, really, as soon as you turn 18, you should have a durable power of attorney and a healthcare directive in place because you're an adult. It sounds goofy that you'd give this to your 18 year old to be like, congratulations, you're an adult. Here are some legal documents for you to sign. But we have done that for some clients that have been thinking ahead about. We had a client whose son had some medical issues and stuff. But as soon as you turn 18, you're an adult. And then no one has the sort of authority anymore to make decisions for you unless you put those pieces into place with these documents. One of the things is that it's so expensive. I don't want to waste money and put this together. It's like insurance. Like no one likes making that insurance payment because you're not going to actually see the benefit of it, right? You pass away with term insurance, like your beneficiaries get that. And so when you're talking about beer money or estate planning, like I know which way 99.999999. We have very little hope that 25 year olds are even reaching out and doing these things, which I wish they would. Is your resident, a fellow, a new attending, like you have no excuse. I've been there, right? Off a resident salary and it's not a ton of money, but this stuff is really important. It's critical. And it, if you have kids, it's already passed. Like you should have done this prior to kids. That is usually the easiest way to get people to take some action is if you have kids, then it's not even for you at this point. You don't want anyone making decisions over your kids. Thank you guys for being on. I really appreciate both of you coming on and spending some time with us and breaking out this horror story. I think it's really important. If you do not have your estate planning done, what are you waiting for? Push pause right after I tell you. Go to financialresidency.com slash TW. Okay, now push pause and go reach out to Nathan in that song and get this stuff done. Guys, thank you again. 
I really love those financial malpractice events. They're always super fun. But today we have a really interesting curbside consult that someone had called in our community. I'm very happy that they called it in because we've received a few emails on this and I've seen some of this kind of out in our community, which by the way, if you haven't joined, please do so financialresidency.com slash community. It's a free group. It's on Facebook. Technically you could type in physician finance on Facebook. And there's about 6,000 physicians and spouses of physicians in that group. And we'd be honored to have you in there and to asking questions and following up with some of the stuff from the show as well. But let's hear from today's listener question. Hi, Ryan. This is Sean calling in a question about cryptocurrency since I just got on the crypto train. So as I was joining BlockFi, I realized that the interest rates were quite high, especially for stablecoin, which has that one to one ratio with the US dollar. And given that interest rates are as high as eight plus percent and comparing this to high yield savings accounts, which are now currently at 0.55%, would love to hear your thoughts about the advantages or disadvantages of keeping money in stablecoin on a platform like BlockFi or other platforms that are similar as an alternative to a high yield savings account. Love to hear what you think about the safety or risk of this approach. While I would never keep emergency funds in crypto, it seems like a great alternative for things that you aren't investing actively either in a retirement account or in the market. Thanks for your thoughts and thanks for providing such great resources on the show. Bye. All right. Like I said in the beginning, this is a really interesting and I think very important question. So stable coins are, like you said, at a one-to-one from the US dollar. So if you were to put a dollar into the system and to get one stable coin back, you now are the proud owner of that stable coin. It's not going to be very volatile. It tracks the US dollar. So it should be always pretty much at a dollar. But when you talk about firms like BlockFi, which is a great firm, and that's why I had Zach on the show, But if you look at firms like that, and there are several out there, they're giving you basically 8% or more versus basically nothing at the banks, right? So you're going, hey, does this replace a high-yield savings account? Whether it's emergency fund or not, it doesn't matter. Does this replace a high-yield savings account for money that I want to save for the future? And then you quickly, and I just want to highlight this, you said you wouldn't keep emergency funds in crypto, but that's exactly what a stable coin is. Yes, its valuation is stable, but it is still a cryptocurrency. And I think that's really, really important to understand that piece. So there are several risks with this. And I want to make sure that you all know, I'm actually a fan of some of the crypto pieces and some of the projects that are coming out. I think it's a really interesting industry and how things are working. And it took me a lot of time and years to understand even where I'm at now, but there is a ton of risk and this is not something you bet the farm on at all. This is something that if you're going to be at all in the crypto space, it better be for diversification purposes and it better be a very, very low, small percentage of overall net worth that you are comfortable risking a hundred percent loss on because that likely could happen. But the risk here to answer your question directly is that there's not a ton of regulation or oversight in the crypto space. And honestly, I think it is very much needed at this point. Cryptocurrencies as a whole are over $2 trillion in size. And that is big enough that the SEC really needs to step up their game and give some real formal guidance and oversight. They have some, but definitely not enough in this. Now, stable coins, while they aren't volatile in price, there's zero transparency on the coin itself. So a stable coin out there is Tether. It's one of several, but Tether is the largest stable coin. And for many years, it has been under investigation for creating 
more coin than it actually took in the dollar equivalent when it was created. That's one of the reasons they were being investigated. Now, it just ended this three, four year long battle in a fine and undisclosed what happened. I think the fine was like $20 million or something. And they had a promise to fully disclose the holdings and show it to regulators every quarter. At least I think high level, I read something a while back on that. But to me, that doesn't sound like they had everything together, but who knows? The point is there's zero transparency for any of us little fish out here that aren't in the crypto space. But the biggest one, and it comes back to a multifaceted approach of who actually owns the crypto. You put a dollar in, you get a stable coin back. The reason that there's a high interest rate is that they're loaning it out to others who need money. And think about that. That is really expensive money. What are the underlying guidelines that they're lending it out on? If they pay 8% or more to you, think about how much the person is paying to get those funds. Since you know that BlockFi or anyone else that is brokering this deal is taking a spread in between. So if they're loaning it out at 12%, they're giving you 8%, they make 4% for connecting the two together. That's a lot of risk that someone else is taking. And remember this, when you earn any rate at all, whether it's in the form of interest or in the form of just gains, any money that you are earning or a set interest rate, there is risk involved with that right? So if the bank is paying you 0.1%, there is very little risk. There's still some, but very little risk inside there. When you're earning 8%, that tells me there is a lot of risk hidden around here. And it's really hard to figure out where and how that risk is managed. But I think it gets even bigger and more eye-opening. So I'm going to tangent this for a second, but it all relates back in. When you think about how it's all connected, And this is where even I, as an outsider, lose some of the pieces because I'm not really familiar with all of this. I don't run a crypto fund or a cryptocurrency firm. But if they lend out your stablecoin to someone that has the loan backed by, let's say, their own crypto, Bitcoin, as low collateral rate, say 50%, then the loan is safe until the price drops in half. Okay, it's well collateralized. That's not that worrisome. If crypto gets cut in half, sucks for that person. Your stablecoin still has the value. If it goes below that, they liquidate it. You're still made whole. Everyone's fine. Okay. That's actually not bad. But then you think they had to put the Bitcoin into, let's use BlockFi's example. And BlockFi is then going to turn around and lend that Bitcoin out because they're collateralizing the Bitcoin on the platform and they're lending it out. That's where all this risk starts to break. Because if they lend that to another firm and then that firm takes it, and is lending it out to another firm, right? It's a string of lending, like fractionalizing our banking system now, but with little to no oversight or regulation. And what we're really talking about here is called rehypothecation, and it's a financial derivative product, and it's really powerful and honestly really scary how it works and the fact that there's little to no oversight or regulation and that more of that hopefully is coming. Sounds weird saying I hope more regulation coming, but it needs regulation. This is where I think we have the most risk inside of this concept of if I do the stable coin, they lend it out and then it gets lent out and lent out and lent out. If something breaks along the way, you might not have any more stable coin left because it might all get wiped out. We don't know how this would work. We've never seen this work. We've never seen a really bad, basically, firm go belly up that had probably billions of dollars of these on their books and how it has all been fractionalized out. But I highly recommend to just Google the word reapothecation, 
understand how that works. That is exactly what is happening here when someone deposits Bitcoin and then they're earning interest on that Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency. All that to say, I wouldn't keep any money you aren't willing to lose 100% of into a stable coin or any other cryptocurrency. Remember that stable coins are a cryptocurrency. And again, I don't mind a small percentage of net worth, like one to 3% if you want to diversify that way. But if you're thinking it's going to replace a high yield savings account, you aren't thinking about it correctly. And the best way I could say this to end this out is this is the same money that you would put into a stable coin or a cryptocurrency that you may turn around and go to Vegas and gamble with. And that's it. All right, everyone. Well, I hope this has been really helpful. I loved that question. Hopefully the show was of benefit to you. If you're still here, that means you're amazing and you really are serious about understanding personal finance. And if you could do me a solid, please share this with one other physician or physician spouse. We're really trying to expand the community and help more physicians so they don't get taken advantage of these products. So they don't find the wrong person to really help them and trust them to put together these financial pieces. It's really, really important that we help educate all the physicians become really financially savvy and increase their financial acumen, just like we're doing for you here. If you aren't subscribed and you've listened all the way here, you really should subscribe. Just click that little button, get notified when we go live. We're doing shows Monday and Friday. And like I've mentioned before, we have changed around some of the segments. It is coming, I promise. And it is awesome. It's going to be super fun. All right. I'm going to let Wyatt take it away with that disclaimer because you shouldn't be listening to me or taking any personal financial advice from me because this is, again, general nature. But I'll let my little man talk about it. See you guys on Friday. Cheers. This is for entertainment purposes only. Do not take this as investment advice. My dad is only a fiduciary for his clients. Have a great day. Bye. Bye.